While I was studying ecology at university, I once had a colleague deliver a final year project presentation about the results of using music to induce plants to grow faster. While it has long been a belief of gardeners that speaking to plants or playing music to them can affect their growth rate, the idea that plants can respond to a, shall we say, a wider range of stimuli than generally accepted by scientists has a long and rather strange history in fringe belief, especially back in the paranormal-obsessed 1970s, something we shall definitely have an episode about coming up in the future. But the idea of monstrous carnivorous plants in particular has deeper roots than that. The age of imperialism brought us the myth of the man-eating tree of Madagascar in the 1870s, and those interested in early 20th century pulp fiction should definitely check out our episode The Seed from the Sepulchre for a particularly chilling example of plant-related body horror from that period. But one fictional carnivorous plant has become so well known its very name is synonymous with the concept. The Triffid created by British writer John Wyndham for his 1951 novel The Day of the Triffids. Wyndham, in his own way, was just as important to the development of science fiction as was his inspiration H.G. Wells, though today is not nearly as well known, something we're hoping to put to rights in this episode. This is Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and this week at The Cabin in the Woods, I'm enjoying an unusually warm day in the West Cork summer and getting a little bit of work done on the vegetable patch outside the cabin. To refresh me on this task, I've cracked a baby can of Rebel Red from Cork's own Franciscan Well Brewery. It's a solid red ale, just the thing to pep me up for a chat about monster plants and 1950s science fiction. Joining me once again is friend of the show, Mr. Neil Phillips from the excellent UK Wildlife Podcast, which I recommend you check out. And we're very proud to have him on once again. At this time around, we chat about genetic engineering, 1950s alien invasions, and Cold War era political utopianism in Roots of Horror, John Wyndham and the Day of the Triffids. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Neil, thanks for coming on the program. Uh, you are straight here from the UK Wildlife Podcast, which has been doing tremendously good business recently. Yeah, it's doing pretty well. It's great to be here. Yeah, uh, we're, I think we've passed 15,000 downloads now. It's not bad because we're only, what, six months in? It's fantastic. I'm, I'm uh, super impressed. <laughs> Yeah. We had you on last year, or maybe even the year before. We did an episode about uh, sort of mystery animals in Britain, and we did one about mm. uh, tabloid lies about wildlife. <laughs> oh yes, yeah. an, an evergreen topic. I, I was listening to. I think the latest episode of yours I heard is the, is about the the ants. And oh, there yes. there was a, there was a few sad stories about um, newspaper stories about wildlife and that. And uh, it's still there's still things happening in that world, of course, with the with the moors and everything. Yeah, yeah, lots of uh, misinformation going around and uh, a previous guest of ours being dragged into it and misquoted and then the people misquoting them refusing to acknowledge it that they have and oh, but there we go. <laughs> yeah, well, that is, uh, that's why we do what we do. So um, yeah. part of my show is about talking about um, why people believe unusual things and sometimes that is to do with uh, 
strange beliefs and misinformation and f fake news. Sometimes it's a little bit lighter and we talk about kind of strange thinking in uh, pop culture and science fiction and horror. And that's what we have today because we're going to be talking about um, John Wyndham's 1951 book, primarily at least, The, the Day of the mm -hmm. Triffids, which is a favourite of mine. I think it's a bit of a, a minor classic of British science fiction, but I think it's one that's been overlooked um, it certainly doesn't get the name brand recognition that like H.G. Wells, uh, you know, especially with his better known works gets. It's yeah. so he's somebody I think is worth talking about and kind of all, hasn't always been. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, I've, I've, I actually think Triffids, along with another book we might talk about, Crack and Wakes, are two of the best sci-fi, certainly British sci-fi stories going because uh, they're, they're, they're quite grounded, aren't they? They're not well we're talking about it obviously now but yeah they're just they're, they're f almost well they are feasible I think in real world sort of terms it's uh, it's quite a scary concept in both of them and, and as all good sci-fi is it's a reflection on humankind as well so yeah I, yeah. I think I think he was clearly very influenced by H.G. Wells, and part of that mm. was what 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 we might now call hard sci-fi, which is the idea that you only change something from reality just a tiny little bit, and then you see how that would play out in a realistic sense. So I think he was of that mind that you know true yes. proper hard sci-fi is where you only ask one impossible thing of the reader, and then have everything else <laughs> play out more or less naturalistically. Yeah. This yeah, it's Triffids always has always reminded me of War of the Worlds, you know, because they they're both, you know, British books of a certain time. Obviously there's about 50 years between them, but they they're both uh, end of the world novels from before those genres were, you know, what the way that they are today. They both center on London and they both feature a sort of a middle-class narrator making his way through a decimated London, you know, as kind of a stand-in for the 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 fall of man for the whole world. Yeah, yeah, it's it's that that scene. I mean, uh, uh, the I'm pretty sure for those that have seen Twenty Eight Days Later, the start of that when a man wakes up in a hospital and walks out, and London's empty. Um, it's got to be a homage to the earliest scenes of the book, haven't they? I yeah, think. yeah, uh, I, be I believe the, that was a deliberate uh, reference to the to the novel. Oh yeah. So oh yeah. there's a delightful. I mean, John Wyndham is an amazing writer, and yeah. He he seemed to have spent his early career writing really really pulpy science fiction for the American pulp magazines, and then he he sort of disappeared during well during the war was he was interrupted as many people were by, by the war, yeah. but Triffids is, was his first book on his sort of comeback when he started publishing himself under the name John Wyndham. He'd used lots of other names um in the past before his own full name is kind of worth reading it it was john wyndham parks lucas benyon harris <laughs> <laughs> so a very long british name yeah <laughs> i do love these sort of old-fashioned <laughs> you know yeah. uh, well-to-do british names but um <laughs> it's, it's, it's the old school version of a, a double-barreled surname i guess isn't it yeah except he's like what well, quadruple barreled <laughs> yeah i'm going to read um so my copy of day of the, of the triffids it's probably a 90s one. I picked it up myself. I think the first time I was ever in London when I was a kid um, at Foyles, which is obviously a very famous bookshop. Oh, wow. And But this version of it, I happen to know the, the printing of it, the cover aside. It's one of those old penguins from the 50s and they haven't changed the blurb at the, at the start <laughs> because I had a copy. I had a 50s copy that my father owned when I was growing up. It fell to bits eventually. 
and and it had the same blurb so this is how he was described to his readers at the time it said john Wyndham was born in 1903 until 1911 he lived in edgebaston birmingham and then in many parts of england after a wide experience of the English preparatory school, <laughs> he was at Beedales from, it goes on about this, but it tells you like so much about his school days, you know, as if middle of the century, well-to-do Britain, you know, well, we have to let you know that this fellow was, even though he was from Birmingham, he was, he went to the right schools, you know, yeah. <laughs> and it talks about, well, that, it talk, that, yeah. What do they mean by a wide selection? Does that imply he um, switched schools a fair bit for various I think reasons? That's what, yeah. <laughs> bit of a creative type and didn't want to follow the rules, I guess. Yeah. My favourite part here is where they say, and this is a very mid-century thing, they say, in 1946, he went back to writing stories for publication in the USA and decided to try a modified form of what is unhappily known as, quote, science fiction. <laughs> Uh, There's a wonderful kind of a 1950s stuffiness to this where clearly science fiction had a bit of a stigma associated with it. Yeah, it still does to some degree. You look, uh, they always talk about the Oscars, always snub sci-fi, don't they? That's right. They don't yeah. seem to like it. Yeah. And there's this funny, like if you think about what, I mean, what are the main genres of film that are popular now? It's all Marvel. It's all superheroes. It's all Star Wars and and you know this this stuff that used to anything be... disney owns that's true <laughs> but but these things that used to be considered niche are now mainstream and like yeah. especially in book awards you know anything that is horror or sci-fi or whatnot gets called quote-unquote genre fiction and then mm. there's like quote-unquote literary fiction but like nobody's reading whatever they're calling literary fiction these days no who's reading it you <laughs> know the, the science fiction which used to be ghettoized in literature is now the mainstream but they're still pretending when it comes to like award ceremonies and and stuff they're still pretending like it's some sort of you know embarrassing half cousin that you don't want to <laughs> bring into the light oh, and yeah i mean some okay there is a lot of crummy sci-fi ironically on a sci-fi channel but there's been some i mean in the last 20 years there's been some really good ones i mean um i absolutely loved firefly which was buried and then had a cult following and yeah, I mean, even uh, good old Red Dwarf got marginalised for being sci-fi to start with, didn't it? And then uh, it's got a rather passionate cult following, I should say. But it's it's fairly popular as well, because at one point it was the most popular show on BBC Two. So, it, you know, this whole sci-fi is niche is nonsense. Look at Star Trek, look how massive that yeah, is. Yeah. You know, it's... I had yeah. a, a... Star Wars is not sci-fi, I had a... Is a, a no, is, would, you, would you consider it space fantasy, is that... <laughs> well correct? yeah so I, I, I put it in sci-fi fantasy just to annoy everybody but <laughs> i don't think john Win i think john Wyndham would definitely not consider it science fiction anyway because... no, no well it just it doesn't it doesn't apply the laws of science does it no, it's all it's no. all yeah but then that that, that that whole concept yeah. that's a very sort of 1930s john campbell thing of saying well what is science fiction it's when you apply the modern ideas about science but then you just you know jump ahead slightly with them you extrapolate out extrapolate, from what we yeah, know and <laughs> yeah and and you bend the rules slightly yeah, <laughs> in yeah. a lot of cases yeah. so john Wyndham, if i i would say his most famous book is, is unquestionably day of the triffids um, and yep. so i think one of the reasons he's dropped off the map a bit is he hasn't had a big budget remake for a very long of any of his books really for a very no. long time and i think one is due the there's been a few televised or movie versions of triffids which we'll, we'll mm. probably briefly mention. Apart from that, I would say he's next best known for 
and the Midwich Midwich Cuckoos. Would you say Would you yeah. say Mid Midwich or Midwich? This is a. <laughs> I always say Midwich. That's what I was. That's what my dad used to tell me. Um, Children of the Damned was based on, which is the film, obviously. Yes. That, um, um, and I read there's another film um, oh, with Joan Collins in, and I did write it down somewhere, but I can't see it now. Um, that went from the 70s. That was a, a basically based on of his short stories. So I don't know if that really counts because it probably strayed somewhat but then so did both two of the triffid i would say makes, i would say uh, midwich cuckoos now that days is probably yeah. better known for that simpsons spoof of it oh yeah <laughs> absolute classic which unfortunately <laughs> kind of shows just how much he's dropped off the map yeah i remember when i was a kid i definitely saw a color version of it um with mm. Kirsty alley in it and i, I was oh, horrified okay. by it <laughs> now, i don't think i've ever seen i've seen clips of it but i've never seen that <sighs> early 90s oh. i think but the the, the classic mm. one is black and white a movie from the early '60s, yeah. I mean, that's that's got to be due a remake. They're remaking every other horror film, and that one's a fairly big one. So uh, it is, yeah. You know, and I was having a disagreement with somebody recently. There's a very popular idea that, oh, you know, instead of Hollywood remaking all these um, previously successful films, you know, why don't they take films that had good ideas but poor execution? And then, mm. because, and it's like, you, you don't get it, man. The, the way Hollywood works is like, no. they only put money into something if it already has name recognition. So they're only going to yeah. be remaking stuff that has already been successful. Oh, they are trying to remake June. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So Okay, that, that's, we'll see. that's definitely something that, you know, yeah. has never properly been, been nailed and could, mm. could do with a, a good, a good uh, re- yeah. redoing. I think I think um, when Peter Jackson actually managed to make a decent Lord of the Rings, people went, "Oh, maybe these are makeable." And then he made the Hobbit movies, <laughs> and um, well, the last one at he least. Ju- he oh, just God. made one, and then nothing ever happened. No- nothing was ever done. <laughs> no, no. Well, let's talk no. about Triffids, Neil. What's the yes. basic uh, plot in Triffids? Just to... we'll do this spoiler-free because I, unlike some books I read on this show, I recommend you read this because it's it's not a difficult read. It's very funny. Mm. It's very exciting and um, it's not a difficult. Yeah, you you know. So we won't no, we won't do spoilers. But what's the general? Well, I've I've read it, which says it already because <laughs> I don't read very many books. Um, yeah. Um, but basically, the premise is there's a man in the hospital who has been who works on a Trifford farm. Now they uh, he explains in the book that as a child, these this weird plant grew in his garden, and a um, and it grew up and it stung him this stinger came out of him think like a pitcher plant um, but it's got a a bit like I suppose like a frog's tongue that shoots out with a poison gland on the end because it was a small plant it didn't kill him but it put him in hospital and I believe in the book they don't touch this in the TV show that kind of gives him a bit of immunity to them to some degree um, and now these triffids it's said it's what's well, mentioned in the show and the film um the t- the show i mentioned in this the bbc film um that there was a russian scientist developed this uh plant with, from which you could harvest oil and the plane was flying over to sell it to the west they're trying to smuggle it out but the plane crashed or blew up midair and the seeds which are like dust scattered away over the earth all these triffids started growing up including the one in the main protagonist's garden um, and they start because um, they stung people and could kill people. They started chopping them all down, um, and they they were starting walking round as well, so Triffids can walk too. Um, and they nearly wiped them out. And then someone realised about the oil uh, producing properties. They made oil. I think it's something like thirty percent more efficient if you mix it with crude oil or petrol, or whatever. And 
so they started farming them in contained areas um, and the main protagonist works on one of these farms uh, some of the venom manages from one of the stings so they wear visors to protect themselves um, some of the venom gets into his eyes and he ends up in hospital with his eyes bandaged and he can't take the bandages off um, and the night before he gets the bandages taken off he's in hospital and everyone's looking out the window at this fantastic meteor shower that's going on outside and when he wakes up in the morning there's no one around and he ends up taking off the bandages and as he walks around everyone's blind they've been blinded by the meteors um, and of course then he sets off into the world and because there's no there's very few people that can see the Triffids escape and without going too far into the plot all hell breaks loose um, and society collapses because pretty much everyone's blind and the Triffids go around and start which where, where they were fairly harmless and contained before without people to control them they start to well maybe not take over but start predating on us humans so the huge I think it's three metres tall isn't it Kian? I think they Something get to about that, yeah. um, and what they use, do is he, he wouldn't use yeah. metric but yeah <laughs> no yeah uh, so it would have been nine foot I suppose ten foot yeah, yeah ten foot I think, that I think they're mentioned that in the tropics they grow to about ten feet but in England yeah. they're sort of seven eight feet yeah that sounds about right yeah so yeah, like I say, imagine some sort of... So basically, it's they haven't really got leaves. If they, it depends on what version you're looking at. But they crawl around on their stub-like roots. They've got these little things they can tap to commu possibly communicate with each other. They sort of hint at that quite a lot, don't they? Yes. Um, but they start roaming the streets and sort of blind humans just get stung. That They seem to have some sort of rudimentary intelligence. That's they sort right, of touch yeah. on that. They do. And these stingers come out and they seem to aim for the eyes to take us out and it can kill you instantly pretty much um, and then they wait for you to decompose and start uh, chomping um, with their stinger um, chunks of your flesh as you rot um, to eat so uh, that's right yes they're, they're the ultimate carnivorous plant in a way and they're not they're not like you know horror movie monsters they're not super no. predators they're only they're not really that even that dangerous it's just the the circumstances that that mm, so everybody is blind that gives them this advantage yeah, it's 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 quite good. It's just the the one thing that happens that tips the balance in their favour. It's a classic sort of Wyndham move, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh. So I have a few bits and pieces marked in the early chapters just to give you a sense of the to give listeners a sense of Wyndham's writing style. He he like for an end of the world novel, he opens so beautifully. He says, "When a day that you happen to know is Wednesday starts off by sounding like Sunday, there is something seriously <laughs> wrong somewhere." <laughs> He's got the very dry sense of humor. Yeah. And he's got a wonderfully kind of a stuffy 1950s attitude, but quite often uh, you you can tell that he's he's got his tongue in his cheek because um he's just very funny. His his, his sense of humor is astonishing. There, when he's in the hospital and he's got he can't see and the the light lights show from the comet is going on, he says or he's talking about his nurse and she says, "Oh, the sky is simply full of shooting stars," she said. All bright green, they make people's faces look frightfully ghastly. Everyone's out watching them. Sometimes it's almost as light as day, only all the wrong colour. Every now and then, there's a big one so bright that it hurts to look at it. It's a marvellous sight. They say there's never been anything like it before. It is such a pity you can't see it, isn't it? It is, I agreed. <laughs> <laughs> and she says, we've drawn back the curtains in the ward so they can all see it. If only you hadn't those bandages, you'd have a wonderful view of it. Oh, I said. <laughs> 
Brilliant. But he manages to be funny, and yet, like, you're still getting. You're, if you know what's going on, you can see the horror beginning. It, it's unsettling mm. at the same time. And it's yeah, little, little hints at foreshadowing there. Yeah. It's quite a. It's it's been a great reread, actually. This I've read this many times over the years, and it always always holds up. Now, one of the criticisms that is has been leveled at Wyndham for this book, and uh, also the. Um, we we might talk a little bit about the Kraken Wakes as well, but he was the the sci-fi writer Brian Aldous famously said that what he writes are what's called cozy catastrophes, which is this idea that you know people enjoy reading fantasy stories about the end of civilization, where you know everything collapses and all of the kind of all of the bureaucracy and the nonsense that we have to deal with just gets blown away, and it's just like usually one guy who meets a girl, and you know the world is kind of their oyster. So he's he's saying like, oh yeah, people like these stories about catastrophes when really, you know, nothing bad happens to the protagonist. It's just everybody else gets swept out of the way. And I on on rereading, I think that's unfair because yeah, J- Bill Mason, who's the main character, like he's horrified and traumatized for huge portions of this, especially at the beginning. And like the London he's going through is horrible and. Like the the book lingers on people committing suicide because they can't tolerate being blind. He meets a guy drinking himself to death. There's people jumping out of windows. It's not it's not a light book, you know, or at least it doesn't it doesn't treat this subject lightly. I should say. Hmm. Yeah. No. No. I mean, um, the doctor he find the doctor was going to take his bandages off in the BBC 1981. I think it was an adaptation. He um, he goes off. And Bill Bill hears him scream, walks out, and the the bloke's gone out the fire exit and over the um over the barrier and died, fallen sort of three or four stories straight to the floor. Yeah. In the book um, when he when he goes down to the lobby yeah. and sees all the blind people, like a huge crowd of yeah. blind people just suffering and crawling all over yeah. each other, he says, The place looked well, you'll have seen some of Doré's pictures of sinners in hell, but Doré mm. couldn't include the sounds, the sobbing, the moaning, the occasional mm. forlorn cl- cry. A minute or two was all I could stand. You know, Gustave yeah. Doré, the 19th century guy who did all of those famous prints of, um, you know, the the uh, the Italian, what am I trying to think of? Paradise Lost, that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's it's not it's not light. You know, he treats the subject with the, I think, the correct amount of, of uh, seriousness. Hmm. Yeah, there's... Um there's a there's a few nice bits in it. Um, I'm trying to think of how to put it without spoilers, but there's the part where he's um, forced to look after a load of blind people, and uh, there's some pretty nasty stuff goes on there, isn't there? With the the gang yes. and the um, uh, you know you're dealing with a crowd of people, and there's a gunfire going off, and they're all blind and they can't yeah, um, and then. And then what happens to all them is pretty bad as well. But, um, yeah, and in the book, I mean, it's it's a marvelous, it's a marvelously um, chopped up book in terms of how much time he spends on the different themes. But he, he spends, I think, just the right amount of time on the triffids and the science. And we'll get into that. I have some some bits marked mm. here to talk about. But most of the book is about how humans re- react to the falling of society. Very like War of the Worlds. You know, we all remember the Martians and the tripods. But if you go back and read it. Most of the book is about the, the narrator mm. wandering through London and meeting different bunches, groups of people who are reacting either with uh, disbelief or, uh, you know, various different perfectly human reactions. And the same thing happens in Triffids. He first meets a group who have decided, well, you know, society has fallen. Therefore, 
those of us who are still functional have to look after ourselves and they're I, I suppose you could call them the elites they, you know they they're, they take an elitist view that the people who are left who are functional are the only ones worth saving and they they, mm. they constantly they have a meeting he goes to a meeting in a building that they've commandeered in London and they say right anyone who wants to come with us you'll have to work you'll have to pull your weight we can take this many f- functioning sighted people we can only afford to take a few blind women and that's purely for procreating you know they have this very pragmatic unromantic view of things and mason in the book he he kind of agrees with this intellectually but emotionally he's caught up by it because he knows this this is going to mean that the the girl he's now in love with will be expected Mm. to have babies by lots of guys potentially or that he will have to like be put hooked up with these other women who are blind so that they can reproduce and it's very very interesting and he doesn't really come down one way or the other on some of these ideas except that 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 particular group he he doesn't feel comfortable with it and and they keep saying you know all of the old all the old ways of thinking have to change that world is gone and he's like well yes you're correct you're correct in a pragmatic sense but we're still human and we still have we still have ways of being and ways of thinking and and stuff like that it's very interesting yeah yeah this is he touches on a few things you'd have to think about like the ethics of what when you've got all these blind people you there's no way you can possibly help them all but you know that in your head but in your heart you, you know you're abandoning people to die um and i guess well i can't i don't want to ruin a spoiler but uh why there's one um plot development comes up is just to try and deal with that issue but uh yeah it's hard to well, say things about ruining the I plot too much. I saying a little bit about just that he does meet different groups of people who have different mm. ideas of how they should rebuild society. And he yep. meets another group then who, I, I don't know if you'd call them a sort of an exaggeration of maybe a socialist mindset, but they believe yeah. that, hey, we should try and save everybody. And therefore, mm. like they're literally mm. chaining sighted people to the blind people to to take them yeah. on, on looting parties to look for food and stuff. And and Bill Mason, he's, he again, he sympathizes with that too, but he still says, well look i'm not we can't be expected to stick with this forever but yeah i think i think the idea of that though wasn't it was to to hang on until hope 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 came until hope came i know what i mean um but that you know bill has the argument doesn't he that the hope there's no hope of help coming anyway yeah um, well or, but there's a bit in the book where he he says i would feel like i would feel terrible if we left them and then a few weeks later like somebody showed up but you know, yeah. when 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 the shit hits the fan, you have to decide, you know, is, is everything. And, and again, this is in my head because of what's happened over the last few months. You know, yeah. we're all trying to make decisions about is this are things going to go back to normal? Is it going to happen soon? Is there a new normal? You know, and, and obviously people are trying to make decisions about their lives. And it's very timely, actually. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a, an element of what's happening now because some people are arguing that basically this is what. The choice. I don't want to get too political here, but um, the choices that have been made by most governments are to lock down, which is going to massively impact lots of people that probably wouldn't have been affected. Um, to protect the few that, or the the smaller amount of people that would have more likely been affected and and possibly died. Um, uh, whereas you know, it's, it's a slight analogy there, isn't there? Is do do you um. Do you try and help everybody or do you do what's best, you know, 
for the majority or yeah and to win yeah, it's credit i don't feel like he sets up any straw man arguments in this he no he, give, he takes these different ideas out and he airs them out and he he doesn't you never feel like he's setting anyone up to be no to just to be torn down and, and bill mason at different times in the book identifies mm. with, with different versions of the ideas that he comes across mm. and then at the end you, you well later on in the book there's another way of rebuilding society which is more sort of militaristic and medieval which might remind it's, you of yeah the second half of uh, 28 days later which which is probably where they got the idea yeah yeah there is quite a lot of analogy with that but i think he like you said earlier he did he definitely quoted it as a strong influence when he wrote that um film uh it is it's basically trivia to zombies isn't it really i think that film <laughs> well they're not they're actually they're not zombies are they a lot of uh, purists don't like that because they're, they're fast and aggressive aren't they Someday we'll um, do an episode about the sort of 2004 era rebirth of the zombie genre and the yeah. very long shadow it cast <laughs> on movies. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I have to admit, I haven't. Been, apart from Shaun of the Dead, I don't think I've been sat, watched too many of those. 28 Days Later and Shaun of the Dead, which Shaun of the Dead was partly made uh, because Simon Pegg didn't like the fast-running zombies in uh, 28 Days Later. Yeah. Yeah. Which is quite interesting. It is interesting, being as however you slice it like mm. 28 days later is still one of the better films about that topic from oh, that yeah. time yeah um, and oh, yeah. not just because uh, Killian Murphy is from Cork and went to my university <laughs> oh the car the car set film was brilliant it was in the budget it had it was got Exton in it as well wasn't it and yeah. um, I forgot what the, the actress's name is she's brilliant too but yeah no but um, mind you a good cast doesn't make a good film which is quite a good segue into um, oh, yeah. the latest BBC version Oh. Yes. Um. So yeah, jo- Jolie Richardson's in that, isn't she? Yeah, I and like, um, I like Jolie Richardson. Yeah. Um. Uh, don't forget uh, Brian Cox, who's always good value. Um. Oh, is in yeah. there. That's the I actor, not the scientist, yeah. not the scientist. Although he he is playing a scientist in it, which is very confusing. Um. And who, is it Do Grace Scott the lead? That sounds. Uh, Bill playing Bill. Sounds right. Oh, and and it is hard getting to go pantomime villain as well, which is. Like, it was, do you know what? I didn't hate it as much as some people. No. I actually quite enjoyed it. Some but, of the climate um, change stuff that they put in there was kind of interesting. Yeah, oh yes, there was that. I forgot about that stuff. I meant to watch that before. I watched the um, 81 series um, a few days ago, which is just, like you know, it's it's dated, but not as a bit like Doctor Who. You know, they've dated if you look for it, but if you just sit back and enjoy it, you don't really notice it. You just, there's scenes that they would now show in CGI, they just sort of skip over now. And, yeah. Uh, but it 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 works and it sticks almost word for word to the book. It's yeah, it's and it's on YouTube. Mm. So, Is it on there? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, I have. It, well, I yeah. watched it a few months ago, and it was so it's worth a look. I put a link in the mm. show notes. The two thousand nine mm. one has some nice visuals. I like the the visuals of mm. the the Triffid uh, farms. Yeah. Yeah, I, I quite like the Triffid in it. That they, they've they've wandered slightly from the book a little bit, but because uh, it's based on um two actual flowers you could actually if you're a botanist you'd probably recognize them um but i I thought you know they got a it's a modern remake and you've got to do a slight um change but um they sort of change the main plots roughly the same but they sort of twisted it a little bit haven't they and added bits in i think it's probably a better way of putting it yeah um and yeah with eddie azard didn't eddie azard become de facto prime minister at one point he's i mean did Triffids really need, you know, an evil villain character chasing Not them? Not really, no. It, you could argue it's roughly based on a character from the book, but, yeah. like, John Wyndham knows better than to just be, like, good guys, bad guys. He's not. He's, yeah. he's far more interesting than that. Yeah, they made it a bit 
modernised. But at least it was better than the recent War of the Worlds remake, which was, again, a waste <laughs> of a good cast. I was all and, set to do an episode on that, and then I watched it. I yeah. just couldn't, Neil. I just couldn't. Well, we were going to, weren't we? I and then we both bring myself uh, to talk about it. When, when, when was it? it was, was it over Christmas, wasn't it? Yeah, they showed it was it, a Christmas it? episode. And, yeah. and I think we had a quick chat and went, yeah, I don't think we're going to bother talking about this we now. Might, <laughs> we might do a H.G. Wells yeah. episode at some point. There's a lot yeah. of interesting biological ideas in War of the Worlds. Mm. Yeah, particularly oh, yes. stuff to do with evolution. But we'll get to that. Yeah. I have a bit marked here in the book, uh, in Triffids, where he says... This is a personal record. It involves a great deal that has vanished forever, but I can't tell it in any other way than by using the words we used to use for those vanished things. So they have to stand. <laughs> yeah. What a like it's it's prim and it's conservative, but it's devastating as well. You know, he's he's painting he paints an amazing picture of a lost world, a fallen. You know, he his world building is incredible. I just love the idea that the the Triffids, they appear all over the world simultaneously because of this botched communist plot and the the seeds start appearing everywhere and the plants start growing across Europe and it it basically undermines all the oil industries and then all these new industries pop up to use the Triffid oil and Bill Mason's job is working with the Triffids. So you learn a lot about them Uh, and the world building for this, you know, it, it changes the whole world. I suppose you can only imagine it's a, a sort of an alternative 1950s mm. where yeah, everything's been uh, affected by the existence of the Triffids. Yeah, there is. There are weird, you know, everyone knows what a Triffid is, but they're sort of, they're not thought of as particularly dangerous, are they? Because they, yeah. um, I mean, what I particularly love, um, which is a bit of a um, almost um, capitalist, anti-capitalist idea is the, um, the fact that the triffids they used to remove the stingers from them to keep them make it safer oh, for yes. the workers but then they realized they were a lot more productive <laughs> if they left the stingers in and bill bill does make a bit of a comment on that doesn't he it's um it, so had they removed that they probably wouldn't have been quite so dangerous at least to begin with for everyone um at the start but uh yeah i particularly like those little little bits in there he's really thought that through hasn't he where he's uh, yeah but just, it's realistic just... too, isn't it? Like they would do, like yeah, a big company exactly. would one hundred percent do that. So uh, there's some, uh, there's some. S- yeah, I mean, there's modern day things, isn't there, where you've got chemical companies will use something highly toxic because it's cheaper than <laughs> the non-toxic alternative. Yeah. It's uh... now I'm I'm I have a few bits pegged here in an early chapter where he's kind of talking about where the Triffids came from, and there's a lot of great mm. Cold War stuff here, and it's very yeah. it's very funny, but it's very cynical. He, uh, he's talking about. It's implied, you never find out for sure, which is something I really love, but it, it's implied that the the comet thing, or the, the, the shooting star storm that blinded everybody was perhaps mm. not a, a natural thing. And he's talking, yeah. because he talks about satellites quite a bit. And this is like 1951. This is very early Cold War stuff. He says, yeah. um, he's talking about firing a rocket high up enough that it would stay in orbit. Uh, once there, it would continue to circle like a tiny moon, quite inactive and innocuous until the pressure on a button should give it the impulse to drop back. Great as was the public concern which followed the triumphant announcement of the First Nation to establish a satellite weapon satisfactorily, a still greater concern was felt over the failure of others to make any announcements at all, even when they were known to have had similar successes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, on the BBC series, they, there's a, a great scene sort of in, I think it's in the last episode where they're sort of it's set a few years later and they're talking about it and he's just going 
we don't know what was up there. There could have been all sorts of weapons. You can imagine, um, you know, one goes wrong, um, but you know, and and just causes all of this. Um, and there's the, and he talks about the disease perhaps being linked to it. But, oh uh, yeah, because there's a virus to... going around after. Yes, as well. Yeah. He says here, at, at least the United States government took the suggestion seriously enough to deny emphatically that it controlled any satellites designed to conduct biological warfare directly upon human beings. One or two minor nations, who no one suspected of controlling any satellites at all, hastened to make similar declarations. Others, more major powers, did not. <laughs> so it's all its all yes. the Russian. He never mentions them, but it's all about the Russians. And to, yeah. th- to me, the Cold War stuff in this, like, maybe I'm inferring this because I'm a bit of a lefty, I'm a bit of a pinko, but like, Undoubtedly, it's clear that the Soviets are terrible, terrible people, and he knows this. But at the same time, there's a bit of sarcasm in there, I think, dry sarcasm, kind of showing that yeah. also he knows that the propaganda that he's getting about the Russians is also kind of nonsense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the fact um, that... Because you could, you could interpret the whole fact that the Trifus came in, you know, the Soviets, scientists made it, is it's... Oh, that they've been dabbling with naughty science, but also they've got scientists brilliant enough to to come up with such but things. He, make, so he makes it clear of, that the Triffids yeah. accidentally, you know, get spread. The Triffid seeds get spread everywhere yeah. because of a plot between this kind of yeah. renegade South American scientist who are, you know, seed smuggler and yeah. Western companies who are trying to buy the Triffid seeds off him. Yeah, yeah, because all sorts of rumors were going about that he'd made something, weren't there? It's uh, yeah. Now he talks yeah. about Lysenko. Do you know anything about Lysenko? Trofim Lysenko. So he, no. he mentions about the Soviet scientists who they suspect That's maybe trap, yeah. created the <clears throat> created the Triffids. And he says later, a cleavage of methods and views had caused biology there under a man called Lysenko to take a different course. And this is a real guy. Trofim Lysenko was a scientist who was kind of chosen out from obscurity because he was a peasant and he kind of fitted the Soviet ide- ideology very well. And they they promoted his work above other people because this is, re- this is an incredible example of some of the ridiculous successes of the Soviet state. But they didn't like Darwinism because it, they didn't like the idea that mutations were random and success was a little bit randomized. So they preferred, yeah. they didn't fit with the Soviet idea. They preferred the idea that these you know under marxism these changes in society are are set in stone and they always happen according to an expected sequence of of changes and even science had to bow to this way of thinking so this crackpot pseudoscientist lysenko who was basically a, a neo lamarckist <laughs> was put in charge of like all of their their like they they weren't allowed to do research that was based on darwinian genetics it had to oh, be lysenko God. genetics which was complete nonsense and there were famines because of this. And he, he was put in charge of all of the agricultural, de- you know, research departments. It's <laughs> mad. It's complete. Yeah, it's nuts. It's a bit like, I remember there was a, in some bits of the US, wasn't there? There was a anti-ant um, uh, philosophy because they represented communism works. <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh, All these social insects were sort of frowned upon because they... Uh, you know, there are examples of all the equal workers working together. <laughs> um, oh, it's just <laughs> mad, you know. So the, the, the slightly shady South American guy is talking to the also shady um, European business people. And he's trying to sell them the idea mm. of the Triffid just so he can sell them the oil. 
and he's trying to explain what it is or how it came about. And, and they say, I understand that it is a new species, something quite new. Then you haven't actually seen it yourself. In fact, may it be some kind of modified, modified kind of sunflower? And he says, I've seen a picture, senor. I do not say that there is no sunflower there. I do not say there is no turnip. I do not say there is no nettle or even no orchid. But I do say that if they were all fathers to it, they would none of them know their child. <laughs> now, 1951, oh. is this prior to any sort of real genetic engineering? I mean, they, you know, genetics was understood, but I th- they hadn't Must sequenced. Be, yeah. Rotson and Crick was 1953, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't even know about DNA so much then. Yeah, yeah I think they, they knew there was something like DNA existed. Um I know one coincidence is isn't the year it came out the same year War of the Worlds a film came out as well. Nineteen no, um, that was two years later, nineteen fifty three. George right, Pavlin. Okay. I'm a I'm a fan of that, but I think you're not. <laughs> yeah. What the the oh uh yeah. Okay. I, I <laughs> It's okay. I just it just bothers me that they're not tripods, they're they're ships a little bit. But yeah, I d I do remember I haven't watched it think, for years. Think about so this, watch 1953, right? I don't dislike it as much as the um the black and white Triffids movie with the awful seawater ending. Yeah, nineteen sixty-two. Uh, yeah, that that is not good. I think those movies. Number one, they depend on your tolerance for kind of you know old-fashioned mm. schlock sci-fi, yeah. um, which I I used to like when I was a kid. I'm I'm less patient with it now. Yeah, but me too. If think about this, the tripods in or the the Martians in War of the Worlds, that's mm. like what what is the height of fashion in sci-fi movies and sort of paranormal culture at that time? It's flying saucers exactly no yeah. wonder they were changed you know they were updated to fit with the times so to me mm. that's an incredibly 1950s thing so you, you could argue every generation gets the uh, the war of the war yeah. that it deserves which doesn't have good implications for us <laughs> no no mind you the 90s uh, the 90s was all right and we got independence day which is pretty good yeah that's true but, uh, that's true totally stupid but absolutely superb okay. could do a better invasion movie in my book but there we go can we talk a little <laughs> bit about so the 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 physical structure of the triffid and and what it does and 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 that sort of thing mm. so it, it it in the book he describes it as being like the the main body of it is like a circular bowl with three that's b o l e not b o w l with uh, three fat roots that stick that sit under the ground and then it's got a stem with three kind of stick like structures coming up from the bottom of the bowl that rattle against the stem and then it has it's about 8 feet tall and it has a flower which contains like a rolled up whorl and when they get to a certain age, they can actually pull themselves up out of the ground and awkwardly shuffle on mm. their three, uh, their three roots. Now, this got me thinking about even before we get to ideas about plant intelligence and stuff. Let's let's just talk about the concept of plant movement. So I was thinking about like nicknastic movement and, and and stuff like that with carnivorous plants. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean. It's probably feasible, isn't it? I reckon you know, evolution throws up some proper quirks and a bit of genetic, bit of genetic engineering. Who knows what will come out as well? But yeah, I, I would like the concept because they're not running around either. Are they? they sort of waddle around a bit. It's it's how you'd imagine a plant would move. Um, I think this is one of the reasons why it hasn't had better big budget movie versions because mm. they're not, you know, compared to some other things, they're not as scary as as monsters, but. The, the irony is all about the, the blindness and the disadvantage yeah. and the precariousness of our situation on top, you know, ecologically. Mm. 
Yeah, that, that's that's a, it's it's a bit too subtle for Hollywood. This is a. <laughs> I think a, that's what I'm getting at. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a Hollywood that thinks um, dinosaurs um, with feathers on wouldn't be scary, who have obviously never seen a cassowary or an emu. Yeah. When it's angry, <laughs> or a chicken when it's angry. That's terrifying. Yeah. If we scale them up, that's going to be absolutely. You know, put a couple of big claws on them and uh, um, some sharp teeth. I mean. <laughs> Utterly terrifying, but yeah, they're Chiffords. Uh, they're they're kind of a bit like um, they're like old-fashioned uh, slow zombies, which is like one yeah, of them isn't or, that much hassle. But if you mm, get careless and they gang mm, up on you, or exactly. you, you let your guard down, then you're in trouble. It's a, more of a creeping horror. Mm. And they've also got the whole extendable tongue thing. So you think you're safe. It's the whole you think you're safe, but then this thing shoots out and gets you, kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, I, I quite like that element. It's yeah, I mean, um, the BBC adaptation, the eighty-one one, the eighties. It had, um, it's quite obviously based on the American picture plant type plants. Yes. It looks like a big one of those, doesn't it, with a stinger put in the yeah. middle, um, which is, which is pretty good because basically that's what their ecology is, isn't it? In in the books, they talk about them. Um, they will eat insects as well when they're growing, and they they're grabbing the flesh and putting it into the. Um, the picture itself, aren't they, and digesting yes, it in there? That's so right. it's, um, and they actually have to they have to wait till the body starts to decompose because they're not strong mm. enough to to rip uh, the, yeah. the flesh until it's decomposed. So they're not these like badass killers. They're just mm. like ecological opportunists. <laughs> mm. I I like the um, the whole. You never really find out what the te- they can. They got three things to tap with, like you've mentioned on this stem. And they seem to communicate with each other. And at the start, they hint at it, don't they? Then one of the scientists in the farm is going, talking to Bill, going, "I think they're talking to each other." Yeah. Um, and he goes, "Yeah, but they haven't got a brain." He goes, "Yeah, well, we dissect, we dissect them. We haven't seen a brain." He goes, "Well, but you know, brains aren't necessarily in a plant. Are going to be the same as an animal brain, are they? No. It could be spread out through the body or, or stem, I and suppose." Even in amongst animals, you know, some of them just have mm. ganglions, yeah. bunches of, of of nerve cells, and and some mm. animals, like jellyfish, have multiple swellings yep. that that in some cases seem to be behaving in with different agendas within the same animal so the whole concept of a brain you know is bigger than we normally think about it yeah it's very vertebratist yeah <laughs> get into invertebrates i guess and as you imagine what's gonna be in plants you know yeah um, it's interesting isn't there's, it? it's brilliant yeah I, I like the fact that they um they're attracted to sound as well yeah so that, that's a nice. It just seems so like a very run... realistic evolutionary advantage that this kind yeah. of plant would have. Well, say so the, the tapping could be to tell the others there's food there because um, you can imagine if you've got a corpse, if you've got two or three of them pulling at it, it's going to be easier for them to pull it apart. And although could we really apply evolutionary things to this? If it's, it's I suppose after a few years you could, but um, yeah, yeah. it doesn't really make sense, but. Mm. What do you think about the? So I mean, there there are plants that move in, and it, like obviously growth, but apart from growth, mm. actual more real time movement. Um, a lot of mm. them are carnivorous plants that are capable of these very quick movements. Like some some element of the trap will close suddenly. So the pitcher plants, but most of that is like the way they seem to do it. Very often is like uh, they'll be moving water around. They'll have these like sacks, for want of a better word that fill yeah, up the water and then the, they push it from one part to another and that causes the movement or mimosa yeah. plants is that, are they the ones that you touch them and they they shrink oh yes it's those ones yeah and i, I think 
Venus fly traps. I think how they work. I think that's almost like a, a spring lock mechanism, isn't it? They use they must use water to pump it open. Yes. And then something tweaks and it, and they slap shut. More don't like, they? A, like a bird's foot, you know, the ones that. Yeah. That yeah. Are sort of built yeah. to be closed, and we, they actually have to apply muscles to and, open them. And bi- yeah, bivalves the same. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, 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 their default is shut, isn't it? That's and right. they have to. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's. Uh, you know, face you think walking plants, but you know, yeah. <laughs> evolution itself has thrown up some weird things. And good science fiction will do that because you, you, yeah, you don't have to think it's real, but you just have to believe it for the amount of time mm. you're reading the book. And even even something like, I mean, I loved Jurassic Park as a kid, and I know yeah. this, I know the science and the the genetics and that is not accurate, but yeah. he goes into just enough depth to make yeah. the idea really captivating to ninety percent of people, unless you were a geneticist in, in nineteen ninety three. You know, <laughs> yeah, captive enough to spawn gajillions of documentaries of is it possible? Yeah. And all the scientists trying to spread out <laughs> saying, not really. Are we there still, isn't are we any. Still asking this we haven't even found a mosquito with you know that's old enough to have dinosaur DNA <laughs> in it. Let alone DNA survive. But yeah, otherwise, why not? <laughs> it's it's crazy. He just went like a little bit under the surface. He did a tiny bit more research than yeah. a novelist usually would, and people have been fascinated by it ever since. Yeah, well, yeah, Michael Crichton. Is a slightly anti-science agenda a lot of time there, anyway, but that's that, that's something for another podcast. I, I think, would isn't it? love an episode on that. But we, we we might put that yeah. one on the slate. Yeah, yeah. I didn't pick up on it until I read an article, and it's so obvious when you start looking through his works. Yeah, yeah. In the end, but uh, I don't know if I can bring myself yeah. to read State of Fear even for an episode. <laughs> no, no. I think I've read Jurassic Park now. Yeah. I've seen the film so many times, it's, yeah. and I know the novel, you know, book does sort of. The film doesn't follow the book exactly, but um, any yeah. final thoughts on Trivids before we move on? Um, that is one of my favourite books. I think. Oh, and also, um, unlike one of my other favourite books, The Lost World, there isn't some cringeworthy um, hundred-year-old uh, racist attitudes in it anyway. No, <laughs> so, no. Um, yeah, it's it's quite clean, it's isn't quite it? Clean. Really, I can't think of some of the. He keeps surprising me with the like male-female stuff because obviously yeah. you've got this old-fashioned like men's adventure where a guy is on his own and he makes his way yeah. through and he rescues a girl, but then yeah. at other times, like she's smarter than him, tougher than him. It's very mm. clear. There's this weird running joke that she like wrote a novel with an embarrassing name, and yeah. every like she wrote it's called like the adventure of sex or something. Which is obviously mm. terribly shocking in 1951, and like mm. as society is collapsing around them, they keep bumping into people, mm. and they're like, "Oh, aren't aren't you the woman who wrote that book?" And she's like, "Can we not talk about this?" And it's, just, yeah. it's like this weird running joke. So there's, but I've every every time I that, think, yeah. every time I think he's going to go off into something a bit a bit sexist, and he he kind of rescue rescues it and has her yeah. pull something out of the bag, and I wasn't expecting. But you're as they say online, your mileage may vary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I quite um. I've quite, I've quite enjoyed um, uh, like, like some of his books people criticise them that they don't they're quite long aren't they? in the sense that not massive amounts happens but there's a reason he does it like that it works doesn't it it's a sort of almost more realistic in a way I suppose is the is one explanation for it but um, yeah it's a good I, I just think it's a fantastic concept and um, yeah there's a few uh, just to, you know there's a few time jumps in it isn't there every so often just to uh, but it just keeps things interesting, I think. He should be up there um, with well. with H.G. Wells, and and, and oh, definitely, and he, he isn't remembered nearly as often or as well. So put him if you haven't no. read him, put him on your list. To wrap up, yeah, we're yeah. gonna talk about one of his other books that I is even even less well known, far less well known, mm. but which made a huge impression on me on uh, me as a young person. 
and that's uh, the Kraken yeah. Wakes. Oh yeah, I, I, I didn't read. Um, well, I was aware of Triffids as a well, even as a youngster. Obviously, it's referenced in pop culture a lot, isn't it? Um, but I, I distinctly, I must have seen a clip of it on breakfast TV before I went to school because I still remember a nightmare from when I was tiny of these giant sunflowers stalking <laughs> me in in my road where I grew up in. It's just a, insane, really. But, um, it's funny how my brain remembered them as giant sunflowers, not... Um, yeah, picture plants. Not, not, not picture plants. But, um, yeah, oh, crack and wakes. I read that. I must. It must have been tenish years ago. Wow, <laughs> that was really well done. You know, I, I, part of me was disappointed there was no giant squids in it, but stuff it. It just the whole nineteen fifties. What's going on down there? <laughs> so, what, give, it. Us, it was give us a brief overview of crack and wakes. Oh, it's a, it starts with uh, two newlyweds. I think they're both scientists, aren't they? Um, Oh, they're, no, they're they're um. I know the journalists. They work. There's writers, a running not, joke not that he works for the EBC, not the BBC. Yeah, the EBC. I like that bit. <laughs> so not, not yeah. So I'll get confused with another book. No, no. Yeah, they're both journalists, and they're on a boat, and they see these these basically meteorites crash into the sea. These orange orbs, don't they? They crash into the sea, um, and uh, there's all sorts of uh, doesn't a ship go missing or something, yes. isn't it? And they. Uh, the Russians blame the Americans, the Americans blame the Russians and blame the Chinese and blame the British and blame the... You know, everyone's pointing fingers at each other. And in the end, I think the British send down a... Uh, Bathysphere. Bathysphere, you know. Basically, a submarine without an engine that goes down a long cable and goes down a long way. It's a spherical submarine. Um, and there's a... Um, and they're observing from another boat, I think, aren't they? Um, and basically something electrifies... Is it that one? Does it it blows up the vast sphere? Yes. Does it blow up the ship? It does, it's on yeah, as well. Up, yeah. Somehow yeah. they send this power up through the cable. Yeah. And the ship goes down. Yeah. yeah. And then all the boats crossing deep water are start getting blown up. Lots of them. All so over they the have world, to. Yeah. yeah. So well trade is is done via shallow water. So they're having to go round yes. rather than across the oceans, <laughs> causing all sorts of havoc. Um, and oh, it's just oh, are we? We'll, we'll, do, we'll, we'll run do a, vague, a vague spoiler. I'll ju- we'll just say like. Yeah. You, then they start trying to drop nukes, don't they? Yes. And it just escalates, and the 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 creature, yeah. the there's incredible mystery in this, and it's incredibly tense mm. and very affecting, especially when I read this as a young person. But the the creature or the the intelligences, whatever they are, it works so well mm. because you find out very, you know, very little about them. Like, yeah. are they from space? Are they naturally under the under the water? When I was a kid, mm. I I think I missed some cues and i presumed that they were some sort of naturally occurring earth species but reading it more recently i, I think the implication is that they're from space but once again he, he's mm. kind of vague about these things which is to the novel's credit yeah. because these meteorites they only hit the deepest parts of all oceans don't they so that they sort of implied that they're they've aimed the meteorites have aimed for the deep ocean like the martians um, again I, from war of I, the worlds i think I can't remember if it was in the book or something I've read about it at a later date. They were um it's implied they're from sort of a gas giant like Jupiter where the pressure's so high that the only place they can inhabit is the deep ocean. But it's all conjecture, uh, isn't it? You never Yeah, you never know. He never shows too much of them. Um mm. later in, in the in the book you do see some some they use some physical oh. um who knows? We don't know if it's a if it's if it's the, yeah. the aliens themselves or some sort of device that they use, yeah. but they make physical attacks on people, and it's an incredibly creepy, oh. disturbing, memorable scene. And I won't say anything else about it. Yeah, it it, it make an amazing Hollywood movie. Yeah, this is that, something that, that, that should bit. be done with a good oh. budget. 
but there's there's another scene later. I mean, um, that's going to be a big spoiler. Should we? Can we do a spoiler alert and and mention it? I think. I I, I was just going to say that there there's some stuff in here that like really hits close to sort of climate change type themes. Yeah. That's all I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. I th- I, um, should we do a spoiler alert? We'll do a quick spoiler alert. Yeah. Right, I've got because I've got to talk about this scene. Skip so five, basically, skip five minutes. This this yeah, book is worth uh, is worth looking looking for. Oh, yeah. It's not that hard to find, and uh, well mm. worth a read. Uh, yeah, but there's the scene in London, isn't it? So basically, um, and big spoiler alert, we've warned you enough times now, um, They where we keep nuking them, they get fed up um, and they start melting the polar ice caps from underneath. So the Arctic and, and the Antarctic. Um, slight problem with that, though, because you melt Arctic ice, it's already displacing water. But anyway, they start <laughs> melting the polar ice caps um, and sea level starts to rise. To such an extent that they have to, um, that London starts to flood. So they build up all the um, sea walls along the Thames, um, and there's a fantastic scene because obviously every time the tide get a spring tide, it's a little bit higher. It's a little bit higher because it's all melting so quickly. And there's that brilliant scene where everyone's sort of staring at this sea wall that is now ridiculously high, and the water just starts to lap over the top, and then the sea wall collapses, and the whole of the South Bank of London floods. And I mean. He, you can't, that's like a Roland Emmerich <laughs> style scene of the whole of London being flooded. It's uh, I'll show you, it is the day after tomorrow, isn't it? Yeah. The New York scene. Yeah. Um, you could do that, and oh yeah, that'd just be amazing. And the the the, the creature scene as well. Very, um, yeah, very. But you never the mystery is what kills me. The the creatures or whatever yeah. they are. The the, the book mm. refers to them as like the intelligences from the deep, which is so vague and spooky. They're off screen for almost the whole time. But mm. we we feel their influence, you know. They sink our ships, they cause yeah. havoc with mm. with our climate. But the only thing we ever see of them is that bizarre attack scene, and you never mm. find out mm. if that is them or if that's some sort of machine they have, or if it's a biological weapon or what. Because it's, it's yeah, I mean, really out there. The, I mean, we've had done a spoiler alert, so I guess we can mention <laughs> that a bit more detail, can't we? It's ba- they just describe it as basically like a large sea enemy type creature. It's, it's, um, yeah. Yeah. That, but the the scene basically these tentacles shoot out and grab people and then it pulls them all back in together into a ball of screaming people yeah. i thought oh my god that'd be an amazing scene <laughs> horrifying but uh it's always john carpenter that one I think. yeah it's, it's on the thing I, like, yeah. I, I read this oh, book yeah. when i was young and i had a i had the flu or something and i mm. i remember having very vivid fever dreams about mm. being at sea in a ship that was under attack and about earthquakes and and floods and stuff when i was reading this book hmm. i mean the the closest film i can think to this is <laughs> this is insulting to compare it to it have you ever seen an awfully brilliant um film called deep rising oh i love deep rising yeah uh, so do i it's, brilliant. it's totally true. yeah it's, that's basically yeah, why they meant it be some sort of tree. weird it's not a squid or a, it's um oh. One of these is it acorn worms it's meant to be isn't Something it there's like nothing that, like yeah. one <laughs> basically it's a long tentacle creature it, um, it doesn't look like what it, they what they pretend it is <laughs> no it they um they it, this basically this kraken type things but it's not like a it's got tentacles but they engulf you like a leech or a wormwood um and it sucks you in and it spits you out after it's digest, part digestive you and they've got that horrible scene at the end of that haven't they yes where there's a hall full of hundreds of people part digested, yeah. all screaming in pain. It's the like, most horrible thing about it is the crap. CGI. <laughs> yeah, it is a bit right. I haven't seen it for a while. I've, I did actually buy it on DVD to watch it again at some oh, point. Treat, but, um, treat Williams and uh, Famke Janssen's in that too. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. good old Famke Janssen. Worth looking, yep. worth looking at. 
Uh, so yeah. yeah, cool. We yeah. I guess we wrap up with that. That's about the time we have for for this episode. Yeah. 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 Cool. Thanks for that, Neil. Would you like to tell listeners about your show and where they can find out about what you're doing and uh, find out about your show? Uh, yep, I um, co-host the UK Wildlife Podcast. We podcast about UK wildlife, shockingly. Um, uh, my good friend Victoria Hillman is the other host. We just cover all sorts of British nature topics, cover a bit of news, what we've been seeing, and we'll stick to like a topic. Like uh, The recent episode was on uh, British cetaceans, uh, whales and dolphins. You can find us on all the usual places, um, iTunes, um, and uh, we're on Twitter, uh, UK Wildlife Pod. Uh, UK Wildlife Podcast on Facebook and UK Wildlife Podcast, all one word on Instagram. Fantastic. Um, yeah. Great. Neil Phillips, thanks for coming on and uh, can't wait to have you on again. Yeah, pleasure to be back. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and I need your help. So here's what you need to do. Whatever you're doing at the moment, stop it, put down the phone and put a little review into wherever it is that you listen to your podcast. It really helps. And if you write something funny, something interesting, we'll be very happy to read it out on the show. If you have an idea for an episode that we should do, we'd love to know all about it. If you're just discovering the show, please do take a look at our back catalogue. We have a whole bunch of episodes now all about... Uh, strange ideas in fiction in paranormal culture we have a lot of stuff to do with cryptozoology ufos um, odd ideas in films and fringe beliefs in science and uh, all sorts of other things as well so take a back look at the catalog uh, and if you see anything you enjoy please 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 share with somebody that you think might enjoy it as well that's the most that's the next most helpful thing that you can do if you want to reach out to us, best place is on Twitter, where we're at Strange Ireland, uh, or sometimes on Instagram, we are at Wide Atlantic Weird. So, until the next episode, thanks for listening and stay safe. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a box.